what happens when you die? Or even more direct questions like, if you were to die tonight, God forbid, where would you go? Now, there's nothing wrong with these gravely important questions. They should be asked. But I would like to ask something different. To call our attention to not the end, but the beginning. See, what if the question went from death to life? What if the question was, if you knew you had one year, five years, ten years, or 20 years, what kind of life would you want to live? What kind of life would you intend to live? Or what kind of life were you created to live? You see, Jesus talks quite a bit about death. And Jesus talks quite a bit about the afterlife. But Jesus talks far more and has far more to say about life. About new life and new birth. Uh, many years ago, uh, there was a pastor and author by the name of A.W. Tozer... And prior to his death, he preached his last few sermons. It was there he said, one of the greatest tragedies that we find, even in the most enlightened of all ages, is the utter failure of millions of men and women ever to discover why they were born. He says, deny it if you will, and some persons will, but wherever there are humans in this world, there are people who are suffering from a hopeless and depressing kind of amnesia. It forces them to cry out either silently within themselves or often with audible frustration. I don't even know why I was born. I don't even know why I was born. Now, there are some people here who know exactly why they were born. They're like, I was born to dance, like Kevin Bacon. Like, I was born to dance. Some people are like, I was born to act. I was born to sing. I was born to create. I was born to do magic. Whatever. <laughs> but then for the vast majority of humanity, it is a mystery. I mean, there's like moon landing mystery. There's Area 51 mystery. There's the ending to interstellar mystery. And then there's the mystery of what is my story? What is my story? What am I to do with this life? I believe it was this very uh, framework of thinking that led God to disrupt a Gentile. Uh, that word Gentile meaning anyone who isn't of Jewish descent. But it was this very framework of thinking that brought God to disrupt a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, if you remember from last week. As he was pondering and praying and thinking about God, and he was thinking about death and the afterlife, and he was thinking about what am I to do with my life. So if you remember again, God arranges for Cornelius, a Gentile, to meet Peter, a Jewish church leader. Now, we don't have time to get into the, you know, into the racial ramifications of their meeting. We covered that in great length last week. And if you haven't listened, I encourage it's an important word for our church. What we need to know right now for tonight is this. Their meeting should not be. Their handshake should not have happened. This was not allowed. Between these two camps is a heated, hostile, dividing wall. And so the last thing one would do of Jewish descent is go into their home. The last thing you do is spend time with them, eat with them, befriend them, or even care for them. Yeah, this is exactly what Peter does. Peter was supernaturally nudged by the Holy Spirit to cross the threshold into Cornelius' home, which is packed with Gentiles. And they were there fully attentive, ready to hear whatever Peter had to say. 
Now let's stop there for a minute. And can I just say, this is a preacher's dream. Right now he's walking into the room, and it's everybody on the edge of their seat laughing at every joke, as dumb as it may be. They're crying out, amen, preach it! They're fully attentive, even at the unexciting parts, even if the AC is broken or not. So I just say, let's let it sink in for a moment. As of right now, it's not sinking in. Respond, you can. Anyway. But imagine this. I don't want interaction, Ross. That's all. All right. (laughs) But imagine this. To say Peter is uncomfortable is the understatement of the year. Peter doesn't know these people. It's like an introvert's nightmare. Peter, according to Jewish traditions and customs, should not be in this home. And blood is crying out that even his presence of being there, blood is crying out that I am being defiled. But Peter faces a small crowd of people, a crowd wanting to have the answer to what am I supposed to do with this life? So Cornelius' exact words to him were this in verse 33 of chapter 10. You can look there now in your Bibles. Now therefore we, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. To hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Now we've got to stop there and realize, because this is a game changer in my opinion. This really shows us something. Again, if you remember, Peter could have done anything in this moment. Peter could have done anything. Peter could have given a puppet show. Peter could have given a PowerPoint presentation with laser pointers. Peter could have sung a song. But what does Peter do? What does Peter do? Peter starts by telling a story. His answer, his conclusion for them comes in the form of a story. Now, if anybody gets the gravity of storytelling, it's us, right? It's us. I mean, humanity aches for a good story, but to Angelinos, this is our bread and butter and bacon and ice cream. Like, this is our livelihood. We've come down to value stories over arguments. We value stories more than monologues, more than reports, more than lists. Wouldn't you agree? Makes sense why those who are storytellers in our world are among the highest who are paid. Or they're seen as gods, or they forever imprint their hands into concrete. Jesus, the king storyteller, knows, and Peter knows, there is power in story. See, stories bring us in, whether tragedy or triumph. They invite our imaginations to see what our life could look like already lived. This is what it would look like if you did this or that, or if we're watching film or reading books. This is what it would look like if I ate, prayed, and loved everything. This is what it would look like if I invested here as a wolf on Wall Street. This is what it would look like if I was a super villain vigilante. You get what I'm saying. And as amazing as that is, and those stories can be, there is only one story that invites us in to participate. And it just so happens that It's the very story that we are invited in on is the greatest story ever told. British theologian and missionary Leslie Newbegin helps flesh it out. Hear this quote. 
in light of everything that we've talked about, even with the Gentiles craving to know about life, he says this. The answer to the question is, who am I, can only be given if we ask, what is my story? And that can only be answered if there is an answer to the further question, what is the whole story of which my story is a part? You guys see it's starting to converge. It took a minute or two for us to get there, but it's going to start converging. See, Peter's about to deliver to the Gentiles, and now for us, the greatest story mankind will ever, 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 ever hear. And if you think about it, if you're familiar with the Bible, there's a lot of great stories. Peter doesn't tell them a story about Moses and, and the ten plagues and surfing on the Red Seas. Peter doesn't tell them about the stories of David with slingshots and giants and lions and bears. Peter doesn't tell them about Samson and the sweet dreadlocks. He tells them the story of Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. Peter's entire story, Peter's entire message, my entire message tonight is about the gospel now, in full vulnerability, as I was preparing this, and I wrote, okay, everything's about the gospel. I confessed this to our prayer team earlier. Part of me was like, hmm. where's the part where, you know, chariots are being run down by disciples, mighty rushing winds, and people being eaten alive by worms? We're getting there. Hang on. <laughs> it's going to be great. But where, where's all that stuff? It's just a sermon. Peter tells a story. And I was immediately rocked and convicted just in that fleshly moment of the gospel. Saying it again. See, if you were like me at times this week, where it's like, okay, I want to make sure that we get this, and it's not just another thing, it's not another Sunday. If you were like me, uh, if you felt deflated the moment I said, hey, tonight's all about the gospel, or if in your, th- you know, in your thoughts and heart immediately thought, oh, great, this is for heathens. The gospel, listen up, ungodly. I'm going to zone out and check my space. If that's what you thought, I encourage you as a friend to not fall into that trap. The trap of the horror of the same old thing. C.S. Lewis, in my favorite of his books, The Screwtape Letters, where the master devil counsels his junior apprentice to use tried and true techniques to seduce souls into sin, death, and hell. One of the techniques that he encourages him to use is the horror of the same old thing. Where people get so accustomed, what they're hearing becomes moldy and stale. Basically, been there, done that, tried it, over it, heard it. Because with that, a resistance grows, a contempt grows, and a familiarity grows. And it seems to the vast many that this is what has happened with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus. Right? It's like self-help worldview. It's another stuffed animal in the claw, you know, crane game of religion and hope. It's a domesticated, tamed, overused announcement. Which, if you think about it, how disgusting and gross of a thought that the greatest story ever told of Jesus Christ could ever be an ounce of that. So we must fight and battle, not only tonight, but every time the gospel is told of. Every time. 
Every time. There's a great quote by an amazing preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones where he says every time the gospel is told and received or heard of, we should have a burning in our heart to want to be reconverted all over again. Every time we get to that point in a talk with any pastor or preacher for the rest of our life, that is hands down the best part of the talk. Every time. The greatest story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must fight and battle that it never becomes the horror of the same old thing. So let's hear Peter's story, summarized by Luke as it may be, starting in verse 38. He says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and with power. So how does the story begin? What is the setting of the story? It begins with who? How? You can talk, Ross. God. God, you got it, boy. It begins with God. See, Cornelius, as we saw last week, had already showed a boundless reverence for Israel's God. So he's familiar with Peter's beginning here. The gospel story must start with God. The gospel story must start with God. Now, what type of God? A God of oppression? God of anger or fury? No, far from it. The God of the Bible is an all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite, loving, and kind God. And out of that love, God created and formed and sculpted his absolute prized possessions. Do you know what those were? Think about it. More beautiful than the sun, moon, and the stars. More beautiful than the angels and every flower of the world combined. The creation that God found his treasured, value treasure, was, was called mankind. It was you and it was I. And this creation sees God, this creation looks at God, this creation knows God intimately, and he sees his power and he sees his glory. You know what the creation says? No, 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 I want that. The creation sees it and says, I want to be that. And because of this decision, mankind, us here today, God's dearly beloved, rejected God entirely. Rejects God entirely, as so many still do today. Rejected his way and said, no, 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 ours is better. Rejected to give glory and demanded our own. Rejected his rule and authority. Rejected his love and presence. Rejected his attention and his involvement. And rejected truth and replaced it for a lie. And mankind did this while standing in the very garden that God made for us. Mankind did this in a land and place that God formed just by speaking it into existence. It was the most devastating event in the history of the world. See, this is the conflict in the story. The most devastating event in the history of the world. The day man becomes haters and aliens and enemies of God, their creator. If you think about it, this was the day the universe began to die. And not just relationship was lost between father and his children, but this was the birth of thorns, bloodshed, violence, immorality, lust, fear, anxiety, partiality, perversion, hate, revenge, jealousy, and all that is wicked. See, this should show us the immensity of the problem. You see, the gospel, which is the wonderful good news, is only relevant when we come to understand the horrible, horrible, horrible bad news. The conditions we were in. Now get this. Get this about God. God in his utmost perfection, holiness, and purity can not 
tolerated. The sin of man to reign over the very earth he created, and thus a byproduct of God's love and righteousness and holiness, the byproduct of that is God's wrath, is God's justice. Please don't think that the wrath of God is something rash, or God is just an emotional being. It is revealed from heaven upon the godliness and the wickedness of man. And like every good story, there is redemption and there a hero will rise. Look at verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. The hero rises with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Now this isn't a hero we'd expect in the story. You see, the king doesn't send some army or a bunch of Spartans or some platoon made up of mighty ninja warriors to be the hero of the story. The king sends the prince. The king sends his only begotten son to live a life mankind could and to walk with God when mankind ran away from God and to worship God as mankind worshiped themselves. This hero, this prince, then sacrifices himself for the undeserving and is essentially the good giving up everything for the wicked. And everything we deserve, and this is so insane, everything we deserve for being enemies of God, everything we deserve, which is wrath and death for our utter disrespect, blasphemy, heresy, wretched actions towards God the Almighty, was poured out by a holy and just God on his only son. Annihilating him, crushing him, destroying him, killing him. Jesus. Look at verse 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. See, this is the climax of the story. Now, it wasn't a literal tree that Christ died on, but Peter, knowing the Old Testament, reminds the Gentiles that to be hung on a tree refers to those who become accursed or damned for doing, you know, for wrongdoing or sinful ways. And Jesus became those things willingly for you and for me. And if you think about it, and the story where just all of a sudden have the credits roll and the words that end would pop up, it would just be a really sad tragedy. It would be a horrible story. But look at verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach. He commanded us to tell stories to the people, to testify that he is one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Verse 43. To him, all the prophets, every prophet in the Bible bears witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And that same power that raised Jesus from the grave Get this, now dwells and works in those who believe. Isn't this the greatest story ever told? Right? This is the gospel. Now do we see why, please hear me, now do we see why it's offending, ridiculous, and a harmful thing to then believe that we can have right standing or that we're justified with this outrageously holy God by our own doing. How offensive to think by your own doing. No, I can save myself. 
by thinking that we're just really nice or we're just really good. I mean, this is the Garden of Eden all over again. It's thinking, I'll become Messiah and I'll save myself. Friends, do you have any idea how long it took for me to get this? I was a pastor doing ministry years ago, trying to understand and fully realize the far-reaching implications of the gospel on life. I'm still trying to figure out what it looks like on a moment-by-moment basis. See, my tendency, and I assume for some here as well, is to fall into the lanes of religion, to turn the gospel into new moralism. And so that's what I did for years. My standing with God was based on how I looked, but how much I read the Bible, bartering with God. God, if you just let me do this, I'll, I'll read 30 chapters. How long I could pray. My right standing stood of how beautiful I could pray. How many sermons I could consume. How well I did in Bible college. How many church services I could attend to. This is poisonous, vile thinking that leads to death, Right? There's an old book um, about the gospel that came out in the 80s. It's called The Subversion of Christianity. And in it, the author monitored how the horror of the same old thing with the gospel over generations became perverted. How something changed as the gospel left its original context and became more and more and more just a state religion. See, but the gospel hasn't changed, just our way of applying and understanding it. This is what the author says. The author has a formula in it where he says, Christianity minus Christ equals religion. See, if you think about it, the minute you remove the hero from the story, we have just merely a wrathful God. You remove the hero from the story, we have on one side hell and one side heaven. You remove the hero of the story, we have sin and sacrifice. See, does that story then, once Christ is removed, the story becomes toxic and oppressive because the gospel is all about Jesus. You see, no other faith system, religion, way of salvation, or Messiah is like our Jesus. No other story is like the gospel of Jesus. There is none. There's no Christianity without the story of the gospel. Did you know that? We're wasting our time. The gospel isn't true or preached, or told them, or lived out. There's no salvation without the story of the gospel. There's no hope without the story of the gospel. It is the rock upon which we put our everything. And here's the thing. This is so crazy, reading these verses today, reading these verses. Here's the thing. The gospel demands a response. Completely demands a response. The Puritans compared the gospel to the sun by saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. See, by its very nature, we accept it or we reject it. We hold it as truth or we say, nah. Tonight, even if you reject the gospel, we at very least want you to know what you're rejecting. But for those who have accepted or perhaps those who are counting the cost of what it means to follow Christ and make his story, make our story fall into his, Cornelius and his crew demonstrate perfectly what occurs when one chooses to believe the gospel. This is so red. Look at this. Verse 44. 
While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had, become, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold back water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I was thinking, my wife and I a few years back had the chance to to go to Mexico on a vacation. And on this trip, uh, we had this really fancy like spa treatment. And it's this progression spa. Like the whole thing took like two hours. And you're supposed to go from thing to thing to thing. Super fancy. I'll never be able to afford it again. But one of the one of the things that you have to do is they put you in a small room, and it's like a thousand degree volcanic sauna room. <laughs> we were dying. We are starting to hallucinate. They put you in there for 20 minutes. I literally kept opening the door and saying, have you forgotten about us? I had to lay on the ground because I couldn't breathe. The air was so spicy. And I'm just sitting there crying tears on the ground as my wife is laughing. And so just when you think that the Grim Reaper is at the door, literally, you think death is upon you. They come and open the door, and they, like, carry us out. I lost, like, 40 pounds, and they carry us out, and they take you a little bit away, and they just take you to this long, thick rope. And my wife and her are standing there, like, what do you want from us? And and they say, pull the rope. And so we're like, okay. And as we did, freezing Arctic water, like Niagara Falls, just drenches you. It's just this rope hooked up to this giant wooden bucket. And it falls upon us. I was thinking, it's here. Cornelius pulls the rope. Peter says, pull the rope. And Cornelius pulls it. And the Holy Spirit just drenches them. The Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power and presence of God and the person of the Holy Spirit reigns upon all the Gentiles in the room. And Peter's just standing back like, what What is happening? He brought six guys with him. They're all freaking out. And thus we witness salvation. We witness salvation. Peter witnesses salvation. Salvation proved in three necessary, significant, primary forms. And if you want to write these down, these are important. First, we see repentance and forgiveness. Verse 43 shows us that, and there's others. This is huge. Author Oswald Chambers says, There's nothing attractive about the gospel to the natural man. The only man who finds the gospel attractive is the man who is convicted of sin. Meaning, for repentance to happen, we must believe we are in need of forgiveness. See, it's crazy to think that more people reject the gospel, not because Jesus this and Jesus that, but there's no way they could be seen or titled or known or called a sinner or bad or wicked or evil. No, 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 no. We have to recognize that man has a direct relationship between God and him or herself. And in the actions of Christ, all is fully forgiven. So repentance, forgiveness is the first one. Second, we see the gift of the Holy Spirit fill them. 
and it's a visible sign of tongues and the extolling praising of God. Now we have, we know that the idea of tongues can blow way out of proportion, right? So very quickly, here's where we at Collective Church stand with the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is good. This is a good thing. It is a gift from the Holy Spirit. We affirm that. It is the least among all of the spiritual gifts. And it must be done orderly. And if done in public, there must be an interpreter. That's what we believe. Obviously, there's little nuances into that. But the main thing that applies to our verses for today is this. That it's not part of a list for proof of salvation. Basically, you don't need to speak in tongues in order to be saved. I don't have the gift of tongues. Now, we could have 80 sermons on each of these topics, and we have in Sundays past done multiple weeks in the Holy Spirit. We've done entire talks devoted to repentance and forgiveness. But if you could just for a moment, for a moment, permit me and allow me to spend a few minutes and speak of baptism. As a pastor, it is like one of the top things to be a part of within people's lives is the day they say, I want to be baptized, is the day that we as a family get to celebrate and rejoice and rejoice and party when people are like, I want to be baptized. I love baptism. See, if any man or woman proclaims with their heart, my life is in Christ, baptism, we are commanded to be baptized, proclaim with our lips and our actions, my life is in Christ. See, it's like tongues, meaning it's not required for salvation, but baptism is an authentic, encouraged action preceding salvation. We here believe in full immersion, like Pastor Lorenzo was talking about, of a Christian in the water, and that's brimming, brimming with beautiful symbolism. Because the water, hear me out, the water itself, it's not magic, H2O, it's not holy water, it's not the fountain of youth, it's not a Bible bath, it hasn't been kissed by angels. To be honest, it's normal, boring hose water. That is the water we use for baptism. But again, the symbolism, the symbolism of the water immersion of going down into the shallow death and rising again, but not rising of your own volition, but somebody has to pull you out. Oh, like how Christ had to pull us out of the miry clay. Like it pulled us out of our grip of sin, of sin, you know, the devil and hell, and man, it's beautiful. It's a visible representation of the gospel and how one proclaims that they love Jesus with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength. We tell the world just as Jesus told the world that he too loves us with all that he is. It's so pivotal that we we are those you know, who are in Christ, we are told, and it's so pivotal for the church, it's considered one of two sacraments. So I say this, if you are here and a Christian and not baptized, be baptized. Well, I'm not ready or perfect or great enough, or I haven't read enough of my Bible. Gross. No, that ain't enough. That ain't, don't put that on yourself. Do not put that on yourself. Be baptized. So again, we have one coming up in the 28th. Mm -hmm. So like Peter here in Acts 10, he sees this, and this is what's going down, and he says, who's going to stop these guys from being baptized? He says, who's going to stop? Who can withhold the water baptism from them? You are in Christ, you believe on the gospel, you follow Christ, and we are one together. 
We are family. There's no longer separation. There's no longer partiality. And baptism pronounces that truth. But crazy enough, it was that exact message that rattled the cages of every Jewish believer and the other apostles. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to do some significant reading, so bear with me. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So the news traveled there faster than Peter got there. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. What is basically, I mean, are you, are you crazy? Have you gone bananas, Peter? But Peter, verse 4, began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending and being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 8, but I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has entered my mouth. Again, you guys remember this from last week. For the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up into heaven again. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Verse 13. And he told us how had the angel had seen him and stand in the house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message. He will tell you a story by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. Verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. They pulled the rope just as on us at the beginning. I remember the word of the Lord. And we said, John baptized with water, but you would baptize with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Such a powerful moment. Peter knows better than anyone that this is earth-shattering news. But Peter saw it with his own two eyes. That everything he would ever know or has ever known has become undone. The Gentiles were full members into the church. Basically, it's this. The gospel is for everybody. That's a story for everybody. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then finally, look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silently, and they glorified God, saying to them, to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance that leads to life. Hopefully tonight, friends, you've seen my great effort to show you how the gospel is more than cosmic fire insurance. It's more than pie in the sky when you die. It's more than Jesus saves our soul from hell. But now The gospel should not be announced in order that men might be saved and made right for just heaven. But that we might enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ here and now. Now, now, there's so much more to the gospel. Hear me out. This is, this is important. There's so much more to the gospel than just going to heaven. 
Heaven is not the point of the gospel. It is the final resolution of the gospel, but heaven is not the point of the gospel. We see that it brings us to a repentance that leads to life. My family and I yesterday were at the LACMA, and as we're buying tickets, they gave us, maybe you've been there, you see those little colored stickers they give you? Little square stickers you're supposed to put on? And once you wear them, you can enter in the museum, and you can walk around freely in the museum. I was thinking the gospel has been boiled and beaten down to merely a small, colorful sticker. And once we put it on, then the real stuff happens. Once we put the sticker on and the gospel on, then real growth can happen. Then spiritual formation is, you know, the real work. And this is an exact contradiction, an exact contradiction of what the New Testament says about our lives now. Because it is the story of the gospel that answers our questions of what will I do with the next year, five years, ten years, twenty years? See, it's not the, not the gospel to start and then discipleship. It's not the gospel to get us in the front door and then leadership training. That's not what it's talking about. No, no, no. It's the power of the gospel that ignites and drives all of the Christian life. Pastor and minister Brian Chapel says it wonderfully. He says we need to be reminded that this gospel is not simply an evangelism plan. It is the message of how the good news of God's provision affects our whole lives every day. The good news for this life is we are invited to join him in a dynamic story and a robust life now. But I don't want you just to hear this from me tonight. I was thinking I can rant and give you a bunch of hypotheticals and tell you, or I can show you. Or I can show you tonight. So what I'm going to do is invite up some of my friends who I've already talked with. You can come up here now. So the gospel narrative can and does inform our every day. Can and does inform our every day. Big moments and little moments. Salvation, yes, but also can be applied to work or immense suffering all the way to a discouraged day, Monday morning. And so I picked some friends of mine who I trust deeply and love deeply to tell me how in the world the gospel for them, the immense, unbelievable, astounding story, affects their every day. So this is Hillary. Hillary, I'm going to have you grab this mic right behind you. Hillary's amazing. Hillary, you have, what, 12 kids? <laughs> you can get a little closer. And I think of what God has done for me and how he has sent Jesus to die on the cross and be sacrificed for me as a sinner. That completely transforms my parenting. And um, I'm reminded daily how weak I am and what a sinner I still am, even um, having accepted God's love. Um, when my children are completely undeserving of love and favor and <laughs> mercy and grace, and the list goes on and on and on. Transformed by being reminded of what God has done for me and what I can pour out for them and how I can sacrifice for them and 
uh, give them grace and that they don't need to do anything to earn their love, that there's nothing that they can do to make me love them more um, or love them less. And um, so that just completely alters being a mom. That's awesome. Thank you, Dorian. Uh, my name is Kyle, and uh, I'm going to talk about work in the gospel. Um, it's kind of cool. Some of my coworkers are actually here in the back. Um, <laughs> Um, I work at a company called Verizon, and um, when I think of the gospel, um, I'll tell you after. Um, and that's nothing to do with cell phones, actually. Um, and when I think of work, I think of, we were just talking about baptism. So when Jesus got baptized, God said, Behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And he said that before Jesus did anything. Um, Jesus died on the cross before I was even born. Um, and he did that for me. So I know that... Um, so when I think about work, I think that regardless of my performance or how I do, I know that God already loves me and accepts me. Um, but on the other hand, if one hand is my performance doesn't matter, the other hand is all this has already been done for me, um, and that motivates me to just work so much harder. Um, and a way this plays out at work is um, I'm a project manager and I work in tech, and I don't have a technical background, um, so I'm kind of like the question guy. I have to ask a lot of questions on how things work. Um, so much so every day that I think I must just be annoying the crap out of my team, asking them questions, questions like, Kyle, do you don't even know everything? Why do we hire you? And I'm constantly facing that kind of, you know, self-worth thought, like, um, just discouragement. And the gospel shows me that, um, first of all, that my identity is in Christ and that he loves me and is proud of me for the effort that I try. Um, and also that even in that moment that I feel like I have nothing to offer, the gospel makes me wealthy and I do have something to offer them. That love and just acceptance has been shown to me. I want to show to them. So, thank you. That's yeah. great. I'm Charles. Um, the question that Casey asked me was How does the gospel disrupt um, or is that it? Disrupt discouragement? Or how does it interfere with discouragement? And my immediate response was, bias or anything, because everyone knows it not. Um, my immediate response was, no, no, no. The gospel doesn't interrupt when I'm despondent or discouraged. The gospel is constant, and if I um, <laughs> if I get discouraged, if I get bummed out or whatever, if I choke, um, that's temporal. And even if it's 30, 40 years, that's temporal, or I have said these things to you. This is Jesus talking. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. And yes, we do. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's super encouraging to me. I like that a lot. I just like that promise that Jesus gives us.
great the gospel is, but how practical and how intimate it can be. I'm assuming any one of you from the story tonight, hopefully you can hear or find a moment in your life, which I would encourage you to do tonight, where you go, this part's wrecked, or I can celebrate here, or God came through here, or I need help here, or I'm freaked out here. How does the gospel speak into this? How does the gospel transform this? How does the gospel bring this to bear or help this or remind me? That is what I want you guys to be able to tonight, tonight, right now, in response, be able to find, think about, and dwell upon, and be able to praise through. Amen? Let's pray.